Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. Loving God, open our hearts and minds to understand that which you wish to reveal to us today. Uh, may we be receptive and may we meet you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you asked me to uh, tell you what I was doing on any random day the summer of uh, seven years old, I probably couldn't do it. And we don't think back to those times with great detail, do we? But if you asked me what was going on the day my Uncle Charlie died, I can walk you through that day vividly. That was the summer when I was seven years old. Uh, my parents told me, we're going we're gonna to go visit Grandma and Grandpa, and we're going to go see our Uncle Charlie in the hospital. We loaded up into our 1986 Colt Vista. It's a uh, matte gray station wagon. Uh, it's pretty stylish for the times. And put us in the back with no air conditioning, loaded up, and drove to Jacksonville. On the way, my mother's explaining that Uncle Charlie is sick. Uh, we, we will... Uh, probably the last time we see him. Uh, I had known Uncle Charlie had been sick, and now I understand that what he had was lung cancer. And he had been uh, sick for a long time, and this was going to be the time for family to come say goodbye. And so I came with my mother and my father and my sister and went to the hospital uh, and walked in to uh, sights and sounds and smells I'll never forget. Uh, my uncle, who was already small and kind of uh, a dainty man, was even smaller and uh, and uh, more tender. Uh, the, the lights of the room weren't your normal fluorescent. They were greenish tinge. They were different than anything I had ever seen. The smells of uh, alcohol and antiseptic smell still stick with me. And then he asked me to hold his hand. I, rem I feel his hand right now. Uh, in reality, I probably held his hand for 20 minutes, but it felt like hours that I sat there and held his hand. And then ultimately, uh, I think my dad prayed, and we left, and he passed away. We uh, uh, then had his funeral. Uh, in, in our family tradition, somebody doesn't go to the funeral. They stay at the house because they're convinced somebody's going to rob the place. Uh, and so I was, uh, my father and I were the team that stayed at the house. I, I remember uh, discovering a dreidel in my uncle's house, and we sat there and spun that thing for hours waiting for them to come. I remember playing Chinese checkers and knowing that things were different. I remember thinking, I hope nobody breaks in here and tries to, to rob this place while we're here. Uh, these are the vivid memories that accompany something like death. Any other summer Tuesday in seven-year-old life you don't remember, that you remember. Uh, a couple years later, my Uncle Bunk died. Alva Ray Benson, Bunky the Jukebox Man. He uh, sold jukeboxes and pinball machines to all the uh, honky-tonks in North Carolina. Uh, we actually got like one of the last year's models and put it out in our little uh, garage area and got to play pinball. Um, uncle Bunt was the fun uncle who had the pool in the backyard with the water slide. Uh, and what I remember about his death is two things. Uh, this is the first time I understood quick death. He died of a heart attack and mom said, if they'd have had him hooked to the machines, he wouldn't have lived yet. He didn't suffer. Uh, but then we went to the house I don't know if I went to the funeral or, or I remember nothing about this, but I remember going to the house 
and being amazed that nobody was playing in the pool. Because this was what this house was. This is where we went to uh, have fun and to celebrate, and the pool was empty. Um, a few years later, in my neighborhood, uh, this girl named Dana Hatcher was, uh, she had finished riding her horse. She was a competitive horse rider, uh, was cleaning it, and it kicked her. And she didn't feel well, so her mom said, go to the car. Uh, her mom finished tending the horse, and when she came out, she had died in the car. Uh, I remember walking past her house in the neighborhood and seeing people lined up to go talk to her mother. I remember them trying to explain it to us at youth group because she was part of our youth group. I, I remember these days so vividly. Uh, graduated high school, and uh, right before graduation, find out that my childhood best friend has died in a car wreck. This is a friend who had uh, gotten uh, kind of his life out of control early and had finally gotten things together. He had kind of kicked his addictions. He had gotten rid of some bad friendships and then literally dies because he forgot to wear his, or didn't wear his seatbelt. And a 15-year-old girl took a car out for a joyride and hit him and he flew through the windshield. We buried him in the graveyard uh, behind the fields where we played Little League. These graveyards that I must have seen a thousand times uh, at all these baseball games uh, meant nothing to me until we buried my best friend there. Doing youth ministry, I had a student die. I can uh, walk in the chapel at my home church now and see exactly where every family was standing as they were talking about the realities of this kid dying. My, after my grandmother died from uh, a long, long battle with Alzheimer's, I remember that I was at Asbury Seminary. Uh, at the time, I'm in the offerings community. It's when we were doing home churches. We were meeting in the WGM Student Center at Asbury, and I was preaching on John 4. I don't remember a lot of sermons I preached, but I know that the Sunday my grandmother died, I was preaching on John 4 and the healing of the paralytic. I know that when my mother died, I had fallen asleep binge-watching Aziz Ansari's Netflix show, and that now every time I see that cross on Netflix, I feel this twinge. I know that I woke up to like 13 missed calls from my father, and so when I see missed calls on my phone now, I feel a little uh, sense of something panicking. A few months after Mom died, uh, Mike Powers, our senior pastor at the time, his mother died, went to her funeral, and this is at this uh, family small church in uh, Sanford, Kentucky. And I get there and I am weeping uncontrollably for this woman I have never met. My only connection to her is that she's Mike's mom, but I am weeping because somebody else has lost their mama. Because I'm now recognizing that I haven't dealt with the fact that I've lost my mama. Moments of death and other trauma become defining moments in our lives that shape us forever. They become these points in times where we can look back and say, I remember exactly what was happening there. They're all different. The, the grief I experienced from my childhood friend versus my mother versus my grandmother are all different. But they're all defining. Nobody really remembers what they were doing on September 10th, 2001. But if you were alive, you remember what you were doing on September 11th, 2001. I, I thought I understood grief until mom died. After her death, I uh, had a number of years of trying to understand what grief really was. I uh, struggled with God, even in some ways. I'm just 
seminary student at this point, nearly complete with a MDiv and a master's in biblical studies, and then struggling to pray extemporaneously. Just talk to God, right? I could pray the liturgy. I could trust in God's character. I could believe these things, but um, I struggled with what it meant to grieve. I struggled with how to talk to God. So, of course, some friends, uh, being the friends they are, got a grant to study grief and lamentation, and they invited me to be part of it. Uh, we wanted to look at what it would mean uh, to intersect our personal grief and the lament of the whole church. This started because a friend of ours found an article from Cheryl Sandberg. She was the COO of Facebook at the time. Uh, her husband had passed away from cancer, and she's Jewish. And it kind of walked through how they practiced grief. Uh, she talked about uh, this year-long process of praying the mourner's Kaddish every day, of inviting 10 people into daily journeying to the synagogue, to the temple, to offer up these prayers, acknowledging this grief and that things are not okay. We interviewed uh, pastors and pastoral counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists. We interviewed professors of worship studies. We read books by funeral directors. And we came uh, to this idea that we as Protestants can learn a lot from our Jewish friends. That um, maybe what I had experienced with grief uh, isn't all we should give people. See, in all those uh, moments of loss, they all kind of had the same pattern. You experience loss, people show up well, and then within two or three weeks, people kind of expect you to have things back together. You should... Uh, Kind of be back to normal, right? They're gone. You figured out your, 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 your new normal. Uh, get back to things. You should have experienced your five stages of grief, right? Uh, denial, anger, uh, acceptance. There's two more in there, not always forgiven. Um, and that you should do it on your own. We discovered in this grant that those three things are probably the worst three things we can do. We realize that the five stages of grief are not some linear process where you work through them and you're done. They're more five categories of grief that do something like this, and they wind all around. And you might be really angry one moment, and then really accepting the next moment. You might be back in denial six months down the road. We learned from um, one psychiatrist, particularly helpful, uh, that there is no going back to being okay. There is no getting back to how things were. What you're doing is learning your new reality. Your community is never the same in a sense of, uh, of loss. You can't just get back. You have to figure out the new. And one of the worst things we can do is bottle up and figure out how to do it on our own. That grief is this thing we do. We realize that uh, we as pastors are particularly... Uh, fond of designing worship that is joyful, right? Because we, we, are, we are Easter people. We believe in the hope of the resurrection, right? That there is good news, and I believe this absolutely. But we realize that sometimes we do it to the uh, expense of those who are hurting. We heard from person after person that they didn't feel like they were welcome in church because... I'm crying all the time. I'm sad. I don't feel like I can say these words. And so we realize that the church needs to offer people the chance to journey through these parts of grief. That they needed to have partners who come alongside them 
to understand what their new reality is. And the church needs to be a place where we can bring lamentation. And we understood this because we understood at the root that God is a God who meets us at every moment. God is not trying to rush us to fix us. I love today's text because it makes so clear that God has always been a God who experiences the fullness of emotion with us. We like to talk about Jesus as being the one who experienced the fullness of humanity in his flesh. But the God who is present with Israel at this very moment wants to pour his tears out and weep with Israel. This text is a little weird for us because we're not used to our city being sieged and to losing our nation. This is the cultural context of today's passage, that Israel is losing Jerusalem, Zion, this great place of safety. But we can relate to loss, whether death, a marriage breaking down, a miscarriage, a stillbirth, a, a loved one who is experiencing a long illness and decline. Every one of us experienced these things that rip our hearts apart. And our God grieves too. This series we're calling Wake, Settling In for the Long Haul. Because uh, we've come to recognize the work that God is doing in Israel at this moment. This journeying with them is not a quick fix. The work we as a church do in bearing one another up in these dark moments of life is not a quick fix. We try to make a quick fix out of caring for one another. All we're going to do is end up hurting one another, even well-intentioned. You, you see it on all the like, medical TV shows where the patient comes in and the doctor says, well, we need to do this and this and this. And the patient's like, well, no, I'll take the Band-Aid. I'm leaving. Uh, the quick fix never solves the problem. It's the couple who struggled with infidelity and then doesn't do the counseling hard work. It's the loss of a child that then is bottled up and not dealt with. Our God weeps when we weep. Our God doesn't want to move us on because we're too uncomfortable. Our God sits down beside us, meets us where we are, and joins in the whole community in bearing the weight of this pain. I've, uh, I've been intrigued by this question in the middle of today's text. Is there no balm in Gilead? The author knows that ultimately there is a balm in Gilead, that God is a healing God. But that if he moves past this moment of time of sitting in the grief, of dealing with the reality that nothing would change. This series is about sitting in the moment. I hope this is a series that we look back five, ten years from now when we look at people who have experienced death, breakdown of marriage, loss of children, and that we say we were already good at caring for one another, but we're even better that we're a people who uh, don't force people through stages of grief. We're a people who journey with each other 
until we figure out what the new normal is, that we're a people who can bring our lamentation to church and be met with a community that loves us. I want to wrap some like happy bow at the end of this. That's always our instinct, right? We want to make it happy and good, but that's not the text. The text is our God meets us where we are and invites us to meet him there. To meet at the depth of pain and despair and know that he will be there. And so, though we aren't experiencing the siege of the city, each one of us has something either fresh or from time ago that is rending at our heart. Let us meet the God who wants to be right there and cry with us. And let us journey with one another, bearing up the weight of that which is upon us. Would you pray with me? God, we love that you are a God of good things and of joy and of all these delightful ways in which we know you. But we also give thanks that you are a God who pours out your tears over the grief of your people. Lord, teach us to be a people who turn to you in our grief and turn to one another. Teach us to be a people who bear one another up, people who love each other well, a people who allow grief to become our corporate lamentation. Lord, we know that there is a bomb in Gilead, and we are so thankful for that. We're incredibly thankful that you meet us well before that bomb. Lord, may your spirit testify with our spirit that you are close by, that you never leave or forsake us, and that you journey with us day after day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen.